This morning, I am not going to ask you to turn to a specific passage of Scripture. That is our, our typical protocol for a Sunday morning, is that we read a passage of Scripture, but I don't necessarily have one text this morning. Uh, my preference and our preference as a church is to preach through a passage of Scripture in an expository way, but for a couple weeks, we have been handling sermons in a topical way. We'll depart from that and go back to a book study of Philippians here in just a couple weeks. Uh, but we've been doing this for, for uh, the month of January. We've been just picking some topics that I wanted to address as pastor with the church family. And this morning, we're going to talk about the sanctity of life. Uh, you could also just call it an, an abortion sermon, but really, I prefer to call it the sanctity of life. And before we begin to unpack this, this subject, I want to just preface the sermon by saying uh, we understand biblically and just from a, a common sense standpoint, really, that a man is made up of two components. You're made of a material and an immaterial part. That the creation account tells us that God forms man out of the dust of the ground and breathes into man uh, of the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. So we understand that there's a material and immaterial part of man. We also understand that the Bible places the highest premium on the immaterial part of man, on the soul. And what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his own soul? We understand that the mission of Jesus was come to seek and to save lost men, to save their souls from their sins. So we get that our primary emphasis as a church and the primary emphasis of the Bible is on the immaterial, is on the soul, is what will, after death, what will happen? Will there be eternal life, heaven, or will there be what Revelation calls the second death, hell? So uh, we get that. And we get the evangelism and sharing the gospel and being concerned with the state of people's souls is our primary emphasis as a church, and it should be. However, this topic this morning does not address the immaterial part of man. Really, it addresses the material part of man. It addresses the physical, the body, in this life, the value that we place on life. And I'm not going to go into depth on the immaterial. I'm going to just operate under the assumption that we all understand that that trumps everything else. A soul trumps everything else. However, I do want to take some time and space this morning to, to have a conversation and to open up God's Word and see what it says specifically on the topic of the sanctity of, of life and what, how should we value life, where should we be, what should we think when it comes to this specific issue. So, I'm going to pray this morning. We're going to have one sermon, and then we're going to dive into this thought on the sanctity of human life. I want to begin this morning just by simply stating that I love the United States of America. I am beyond grateful that God and His providence would allow me to be born to Reno and Carla Likens, who were both and still are American citizens in Louisville, Kentucky, which is one of the United States of America. Now, my ultimate loyalties lie in my heavenly citizenship more than they do my earthly citizenship. My ultimate affection is placed on the Lord Jesus and not on the stars and stripes. And my ultimate authority is found within the pages of scriptures rather than the Constitution. However, I am extremely grateful to live and to minister in this land. I am even grateful for much of the history of our country. Much of our history has been the struggle and the wrestling with deep ethical issues. The issue of slavery in the 19th century was a profoundly ethical issue in the war between the states. 
Sure, there were other issues that were involved, but the real emotion of the war, brothers taking up arms against brothers, was the deeply ethical issue of slavery and its implications. Some would even say that the, um, the civil rights movement was in many ways an extension and a postscript to issues that were not resolved in the war between the states and had deep ethical ramifications. Some would even argue that the, that the Vietnam War was a war that perhaps was an ethical question of what type of war would our country be involved in or not be involved in. And when we come to the issue of abortion or the sanctity of life, it is an issue that, in my opinion, is one that is perhaps most ethical and perhaps most complicated and so much more so than maybe any other issue our society has faced. And this, I understand that this is an issue that will not be settled with a bumper sticker, that it will not be settled ultimately with a sign or a slogan and a protest march. And ultimately, this is a relatively straightforward question. However, there are a lot of complexities to this issue, and it would be short-sighted for us to understand that abortion and, and all of its swirling complexities, that it would be short-sighted for us to understand it as anything less than complicated. And abortion, in my estimation, is complicated for a few reasons. First of all is because it involves the rights of women. This is an issue that has dramatic ramifications for women. Women must go through what even the scriptures call the travail of childbirth. And a woman's body obviously houses a child until that child is born. And that is not something that we can ignore entirely or even oversimplify. I would say that abortion is complicated because it also involves the right to privacy. There are many people who resent the government being at all involved in matters that they deem to be deeply personal. And government overreach is often assumed and there are many that would say, government, get off my lawn. I don't, I don't want you to be involved in any matters that I feel should be a personal decision. And you should not pass a law to tell me that I cannot do this or I should do this or you should box me in to some certain degree. But this should be a matter of let every man choose that which is right in his own eyes because it's a personal issue and it's a right of privacy. It involves the rights of individual liberty. We are an increasingly individualistic society. I would argue not for our betterment but for our detriment. But regardless, we are increasingly individualistic, which is contrary to many Eastern cultures that center around the family and family ties. And individual liberty is about as hollowed a concept as you can find in our country today. And as such, there are, there are many that would see pro-lifers trying to advance an agenda that is going to impede someone else's individual liberty. This certainly involves the rights of the unborn. And this is, is the central question, really, that perplexes many, is, is how much right should the law afford to a child that is yet born? And at what point in time should the law afford some semblance of rights to that child or person? This involves, for some, the separation of church and state. And I put separation in air quotes because there's a deep misunderstanding of what that means and what the Constitution actually intended to mean by saying that we should not have a state-run church. But there are many people in our society who are not members of a religious community, whether that's a church or a synagogue or a mosque, and they deeply resent 
someone else trying to push forward an agenda that they view to be based on their religion or their moral code or what their particular scriptures have to say. And many in our society that are secular would point to the Constitution and its prohibition of a state-run church, and they would say, look, you should not have religion involved in politics at all, so keep your opinion to yourself. And there are large chunks of our society that do, in fact, view the driving force and the rationale behind a pro-life agenda as one that is religious. And as such, because they're not religious, they have a natural aversion to it. And I would say that if you were not religious, you would probably have an aversion to it as well. And what happens with the topic of abortion is that you have this massive collision of perceived rights all at once coming to play. And you, you have this, this convergence of this right and this right, and which one should trump the other, and which one should have priority. And to think of abortion as anything less than complicated, I believe, would be short-sighted. On top of all of that, you have an enormous amount of passion that's involved in the discussion. And abortion is one of the most divisive struggles that our nation, frankly, has ever faced. And it's a topic that engenders a tremendous amount of strife and controversy because we understand this is a conversation that is of life and death significance. We understand that this is not just another sub-issue that we can just chat about for a little bit, but it is something that is deeply ethical and deeply personal. As such, emotions run high. Many times verbal bullets will fly. Hearts will be set ablaze. And passion is not to be found lacking in the discussion on abortion. I will even admit to you this morning that I find my own heart difficult to rein in. And this is a topic that engenders more heat than light oftentimes. And my goal this morning is not to be all heat and no light. My goal is to have an honest conversation and an honest dialogue on this. But I would be dishonest if I didn't say that it is in my own personal heart that the current of my emotions has pulled me deeply towards a, a gamut of different emotions throughout the week. And there have been moments in my own study that I just had to stop and pray, even cry a little bit. And it is something that engenders deep passion. And I understand, frankly, that someone who takes a pro-choice or pro-abortion stance doesn't care that I have some tears. I get that. I honestly do. But it doesn't negate the fact that this issue is complicated because there's a lot of passion involved. And even though the issue of abortion is complex, my goal this morning is to try to attempt to handle this with not unbridled passion, but to handle it in a succinct and, and even logical way. As such, I will be a, a bit more note-dependent this morning because I find that the, the further I detour from my notes, the... I just tend to run towards emotion and passion. And it's complex, but I do think, if we're honest, that there's one pivotal question that the issue of the sanctity of human life 
really rest upon? And that central question is, is very simple, and that's this, is abortion murder? That really is the question that people want to know the answer to. Is it, in fact, murder? And to answer that, I do think that there's a subset of questions that we have to answer, primarily two. Number one, is abortion an act that willfully destroys a living human person? And I chose those words very carefully. It needs to be a willful act. There is a distinction biblically and in our laws between murder in the first degree and manslaughter. Is it a willful act? And is that willful act the actual termination of life? Is that fetus living? And if that fetus is living, is that human life? But it's not enough to stop there because my liver is living and my liver is human life. Is that, is that living human life, is that a person? Is there an actual individuated person inside of that mother's womb? And this is an important distinction to make because we must understand that those that would take a pro-choice or a pro-abortion stance would not see that quote-unquote fetus as an actual individuated living human person. I have yet to meet someone that was a proponent of a pro-choice stance that said, I believe that that's an individuated person, that there actually is humanity there, and that we have the right to murder that person. Now, maybe those people exist, but I've yet to meet someone who said, I believe that the woman's right to her own body includes the right to actually kill or murder another person. So for those that would have a pro-life stance, we must understand that the other side of the argument doesn't view that person as a person. And that's important to remember if we're going to have any sort of honest dialogue with our coworkers or our neighbors or our family or someone that would have a different viewpoint than us. If we can't agree that that is, in fact, inside of a woman, a living human person, then we have to answer the question that seems to perplex us at this current moment in time, and that's when does that child become a living human person? At what point in time can we actually say that life begins? And even that is complicated because we as a society, we don't agree on our authority sources. We as, as just a whole, as a society, do not look to the same sources of authority to weigh in and answer the most fundamental questions that are perplexing us. So there are, there are a lot of authority sources. Primarily, I believe there are three. There are those that would look to the Bible as their primary authority source, and they would have the opinion, as I do, that, hey, God said it in his word, and that settles it. But it would be ignorant for me or for us to ignore the fact that there are a multitude of people whose consciences are not held captive by the word of God. And nor should they be, because they're not Christians. It's unreasonable for us to expect that the Word of God would have a weight over them. And beyond that, it's a little complicated because there are a few inside of Christian circles that would have a, a different opinion that would not be a pro-life, but would be a, a pro-choice stance inside of Christian circles. Now, that's a minority, and I would say shame on those people that are, because there has been great continuity from the first century all the way throughout church history. There have been very few issues that have so united the church broadly that have brought together evangelicals and the Pope on the same issue that we agreed on. So there are those that look to the Bible as an authority source, but there are those that don't care what the Bible has to say, and they look to science as an authority source. 
And they say, I want, I want to know what natural law has to say. I want empirical evidence before I can make a determination on is that actual living human life and a person, and if that is a person, when does that begin? And, but even those that would hold science in a high view would have to admit that there's some questions that science is vague on. The science cannot answer or, or at best is fuzzy. There are those that say, forget the Bible, forget science. I'm just going to take my cues from the government. I'm just going to look to governmental decisions. If the government says no, I say no. If the government says 24 weeks, I say 24 weeks. If that's what the law of the land is, then that's what I'm going to use to guide my ship. Now, the problem with that is anyone who has any sense of history whatsoever would have to be willing to admit that there have been many governments and the majority of people at times have gotten some things ethically wrong, i.e. Germany in the 40s. And it's unwise for us to take our cues on what we believe about a sense of, of morals or ethics strictly by what the majority says or by counting noses. Now, this morning, I would submit to you that I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a politician, and I'm not a physician, but I am a pastor. And as such, my viewpoint on this, my authority on this is the Word of God. And as such, that's what I'm interested in this morning. That's what I want you to be interested in this morning. What does the Bible actually have to say about this? And that will be our task this morning, is to do our best to unpack the biblical data and to understand what does God's Word say on this issue. There will be times, however, that I will appeal to science or I will appeal to general logic to try to help us understand and to maybe put some arrows in your quiver to, to have in a conversation with some other people. Before we dissect the biblical data, I must admit this. This conversation would be 30 minutes shorter if there was a verse in the Bible that said, thou shalt not abort a baby because a baby is a living human person at conception. We could just read the verse and go home. Unfortunately, that verse does not exist in the Bible. So, we have to do our best to take biblical data and to piece together different passages, different thoughts, different topics to come to a conclusive understanding of what does the Bible in fact say about this. And I believe the Bible weighs in on many aspects to this, but there really are only two questions that one need to answer from the biblical data. Perhaps there's only even one question that someone need to answer from the biblical data to come to a logical conclusion on where we would stand as a church or as Christians on this particular issue. So the biblical perspective, I want you to understand two facets, and I want you to understand the two facets clearly. Number one is this. The biblical perspective is that life is sacred that there is, in fact, sanctity in human life. And that concept of life being sacred and there being sanctity is found in the opening chapter of the Old Testament. If you pick up your Bible and begin to read, you need only to go 27 verses before you find the concept that life is sacred. Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now this is a concept that in theology we call the concept of the imago Dei. What this means is that mankind, according to the biblical data, was created in the image of God. That God created man in his own likeness, so to speak. This does not mean that we're little gods. 
This does not mean that we're junior grade deities. We are, in fact, finite creatures as humans. But it does mean that every human, no matter how corrupt or virtuous, that every human has the indelible mark of his creator stamped upon his soul, and that in certain ways we all are like our creator, that we have all been given the capacity to mirror and to reflect the character of God. Now this concept of the imago Dei and man being made in the image of God is made to bear on the sanctity of human life as early as Genesis chapter number 9. Genesis 9, we're introduced to the concept of capital punishment, but the concept of, of capital punishment is against the backdrop of man being made in God's image. Genesis 9 says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Now, that's not proverbial wisdom such as, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword but is actually an ethical imperative in the biblical data. But today's sermon is not on capital punishment, and if that should be valid in our current cultural society or if that should not be valid. I'm, I'm not attempting to answer that or say yes or no on that. What I'm attempting to do is to point out that life was valuable to God. And life was so valuable that he said, if you take a life, I am going to require your life of you, that you actually forfeit your own right to life. Because that person is made in my image and there's a value there. Now this is pressed home even further in the Decalogue and what we would call the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And we know the very short, succinct command, thou shalt not kill. Or you could say thou shalt not murder in the first degree. Genesis 21 and 22 elaborate on what exactly that means. and makes it clear that it's not talking about manslaughter or war. Or it's talking about murder in, in the first degree. And once again, God, as he establishes the concept of thou shalt not kill, he enjoins the penalty of capital punishment to that. And he does so because there's an understanding that man is made in the image of God, that the imago Dei is something that we should hold of, of great value. And God is saying in the early chapters of the Bible that, that mankind is so valuable that an attack on a man is in fact an attack on God himself, that you are attacking an image bearer, that you are attempting to devalue life or take away a life that's made in my image. And Darwinian theory and evolution would say esteem men because we're men. The biblical data does not say that. It says esteem man and hold life and value because man is made in God's image. Because we are image bearers of God, and that has extreme value. Now, Jesus in the New Testament takes this concept, and he pushes it even further to help us understand the supreme value that a human life has. In the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus says this. He says, ye have heard that it had been said of old time, thou shalt not kill. Jesus says, you know the command. You know the Ten Commandments. You know thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now that's one of the strongest statements that Jesus ever made ethically. And what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, don't think that you've obeyed the law if you just have not murdered somebody. 
Jesus is saying, you, you are to hold life of such value, rooted in the command, thou shalt not kill, of such value and sanctity as human life that you should do nothing to harm human life. That I'm telling you that if you're angry with your brother unjustly, that you're devaluing human life based on the concept thou shalt not kill. I'm telling you that if you slander someone, that you're devaluing human life. If you'll say to your brother Rakav, you'll slander them. What Jesus is saying that beyond just thou shalt not murder somebody, the deeper implications of the prohibition to not kill other people is that there's an expectation of the opposite. That the, what the law says in the negative, thou shalt not kill, means that the opposite is implied in the positive, that we should value life. Don't kill the negative. Positive means value and hold and esteem life of the greatest regard. This is the theological underpinning for much of Jesus' ethical teaching on how we treat other people. This is why, because there's such an emphasis and, and such a, a supremacy given to human life in the Bible, this is why Jesus can tell us, love your neighbor as yourself. This is why Jesus can make the statement a few verses later that if, if, if someone persecutes you, don't hate them, bless them. If someone uses you, pray for them. If someone's your enemy, don't, don't be against them, but love them. Now, why, why, how could Jesus say that? Because he understood the real ethical foundation for those commands was not just don't take life, but it was value life to the highest degree. That know that life is sacred. Know that there is sanctity contained in any human life. Now, I would submit to you that even those who do not hold the Bible in high regard would have to give credence to this thought that life is sacred. Even someone who took their cues from science would have to acknowledge that scientific data pushes us to the thought that life is sacred. Anthropologists for, for long have acknowledged what some have called the law of the nations. That as we look at different societies in our current, uh, in, our, in different cultures in our current slice of time, but even if you start to look at societies all throughout different courses of time, or you look at different religions and their, their credences and their practices, what are some commonalities that, that we could find that have bound humanity together? What are some things that have really been ethical teachings that have been the norm across all of civilization? And, and one of those commonalities that they have found in the law of the nations, and a major commonality, I'm I add is that there's a command just pervasive in human history don't murder people all societies have have basically had this adherence to life is sacred and life is valuable so treat it as such Immanuel Kant an 18th century philosopher he was a German guy who loved science much more than he loved the Bible called this a sense of oughtness and he said that we are born with the intuitive sense to see murder as wrong, that automatically we just instinctually value human life, and that all people out of the wellspring of our common humanity, we instinctively abhor murder. Even, even the law of self-preservation in science would, have a, would cast a shadow on the thought that life is sacred. It's very easy to observe that even in plant life and vegetation and in animal life, that there is a struggle for life and there is a struggle against death in all of our universe. 
So I'd have to think that even someone who loved science more than they loved the Bible would have to see that life is valuable. If someone didn't love the Bible and didn't love science, but they loved our governmental law, I'd have to think that they would see that life is valuable. Our founding document said that we hold certain truths to be self-evident. There are particular truths that you don't need a college education for. You don't need to be a philosopher to understand. And among those truths are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I don't know if the framers of our founding documents intended to put those in order of importance, but I would have to think that perhaps they thought that life was first and liberty was second and the pursuit of happiness would have been third. Government should take very seriously its responsibility to wield the sword, so to speak, and its responsibility to protect life. And by and large, I feel that our government does a good job of this. Not completely, but by and large. This is why we count the cost very deeply before we enter into war. And we aren't just willy-nilly about, oh, let's go to war here and let's go to war there, but we, we count the cost. Why? Because it's going to cost us monetarily? No, not so much, because we ask ourselves the question, how much human life will be, will be lost? This is why as a government we even have a law that you can't take your own life. You don't have the right over your own body to commit suicide according to the laws of our land. Why? Because we understand life is valuable. This is why murder in the first degree has an extreme punishment attached to it. Life in prison or in some states, capital punishment. Why is that the case? Because we understand instinctively as a society that life is valuable. Now, I dwell on this point, the sanctity of life, from multiple angles and try to cover it from different facets for a reason. Because let's suppose for a moment that we could not answer the question, where does human life begin? Let's just suppose that we had no biblical data to dissect that question. That we had no indication, that we had no rudder to guide our ship to know, does that, is that baby, is that fetus actually a human person now or not at 20 weeks, at 12 weeks, at conception, at, at 30 weeks? If we had nothing to guide us and we said we're just not sure, and this is where many people are at, we just can't know for sure. If we had nothing to guide us and we could not say definitively that that actually in that mother's womb, that that actually is a living, breathing human person, the best that we could say is that that's potentially a living, breathing human person. That's the best we could say. That that's not actual life. That is potential human life. But even if that was the best we could say, the fact that life is so valuable and so sacred, it would have to mean that the burden of proof would rest upon the person that says or argues that it is not, in fact, a human person. Because life is so valuable, logically, it would have to mean that if, at the very least, it's potentially human life, that the burden of proof rests upon the person that says, I don't think it is, that they would be the ones that had to prove this is not, in fact, a human person, which no one can do, by the way. Instead, society has flipped the script and said, no, the burden of proof rests upon the person to actually give me empirical evidence that that is a living human person, which makes no sense at all. 
It devalues and it degrades the sanctity of human life. And I would tell you this morning that before you hire a surgeon or recommend to someone that they hire a surgeon to take his knife, a knife in his hand and to terminate a pregnancy and to potentially snuff out human life, we must be 100% sure that that is not a human life. We would have to be, be able to answer that without a shadow of a doubt, we're 100% sure that that is not a living, breathing, breathing human person. And I understand they're not breathing in the womb, but you get what I mean. Life is too sacred to decide with a question mark or with a roll of the dice. The issue of abortion is, is, is far too weighty to determine by a matter of personal preference or convenience or an economic situation. We have to understand that Bible, science, government, it doesn't matter. It all tells us that life is sacred and life is valued. But beyond that, I would submit to you this morning that the biblical data suggests to us and tells us that life begins at conception. What you find in the Bible is clearly this, that personhood is ascribed to the unborn. And this helps us as Christians answer the question, when does life begin? Now, anyone with an IQ above five would have to at least admit, no matter what your authority source is, would have to at least admit that there is a continuity between prenatal and postnatal life. That is something that is, that is self-obvious. It cannot be disputed. But the question that plagues our society is when does that actual human life begin? When does the continuity begin to establish itself in prenatal and postnatal? If that is a living human person, when do they become a living human person? Now, it's important at this point in time to understand that from an ancient perspective or from a biblical perspective, in Hebrew or in Greek, the word that's used to describe a born child is the same word that's used to describe an unborn child. The prenatal life and postnatal life have the same term that describes them. It's a relatively modern invention that we would begin to describe an unborn child in a different, in different terminology that we would use fetus. That's particularly why I have an aversion to that terminology. I will use it for the remainder of, of, our, of our conversation together this morning, but it's a new concept relatively to begin to think of that person as less than human and to ascribe a different term to the unborn child. But this is what the Bible tells us. I'll read a passage for you. It's in your notes if you want to read it with me. But Psalm 139 is a beautiful passage that tells us that God possessed this person's reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, that my soul knoweth right well. My substance, it was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. I love these two phrases. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, or yet being unmature. When I was unmature, when I was in my mother's womb, you saw me and knew me. In thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there were none of them. What this is saying in a nutshell is, God, you had a personal relationship with me before I was even born. We know the story of, of Elizabeth and Mary in Luke chapter number one in the Christmas story. 
Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and Mary goes to visit Elizabeth when she is just ending her second trimester. She's six months pregnant with this baby boy. And the Bible tells us that when Mary gave her salutation and she greeted Elizabeth, that the Holy Ghost came upon John the Baptist in the womb at six months old, and that baby boy leaped for joy. It does not say that the blob of tissue kicked at Elizabeth's womb. It says that there was a person there who had joy and actually had the Holy Spirit upon him from the womb. Jeremiah 1 is a very famous passage of Scripture that many pro-life proponents have have looked at. And, And Jeremiah 1 basically says that, God, you sanctified me in the womb. And on top of that, before conception, you knew my person. Before I was even conceived. Genesis 25 tells us that Rebekah was pregnant with Jacob and Esau, twin boys. And it tells us that those twin boys struggled together within her. It's not two, two pieces of tissue bumped up against each other. We're told that the sibling rivalry between those two twins started in the womb. That they started fighting each other in her womb and God told Rebekah, this is going to be something that continues throughout the course of their life. I would, I would have to think that even the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ himself, would have to indicate to us that life begins at conception. If the task of Jesus was to take on humanity and to live a human life and to die for our sins, but humanity did not begin in the womb and humanity began at birth, then why would Jesus have wasted nine months of his time? A stork could have dropped him off. Why would Jesus become a zygote in Mary's womb if he did not actually need that to take on human flesh, to actually become a human person? Why not just, I mean, Adam was formed, right, out of the dust of the ground, and boom, he, there he was. He didn't go through a birth process. Why couldn't Jesus have done that? I would, I would think that's a soft argument to indicate to us that life began at conception in that womb. What this means, practically speaking, is that my birthday is June 24th, 1987, but I'm nine months and two weeks older than that. By my date of birth, I'm 30 years old. In actuality, I'm 31 and a half-ish. I just matured right, right in front of you. You had no idea that I was already 31 and mature. But realistically, if we were to look at the Bible in that way, I've, my date of birth, June 24th, 1987, but that's not how old I am. What this means for us is that we understand the Bible over and over and over again ascribes personhood to the unborn. I do not have time this morning to elaborate on this passage, but I encourage you to study it in your own time. Exodus 21, verses 22 and 23 describe to us, it's a clarification of thou shalt not kill. What does that mean? And it gives us a scenario where a woman is pregnant and men are wrestling and somehow this woman gets hit and she is sent into an early delivery of this child. And the text, I believe, tells us that if that woman gives birth to the child but no mischief befall them, mom and baby are healthy, then the dad can demand of the guy who accidentally hit her a fee or a fine. But if mischief should befall and that baby should die or that mother should die, then life for life is demanded. Now, to be honest with you, there have been some that have interpreted that passage in, in a different way, and there are a couple words that are a little vague in that passage, but I believe that that particular passage of Scripture teaches us that fetal health and maternal health are treated equally. 
And it implies that the unborn child and the mother have the same amount of rights that should be afforded to them in Jewish law and as such should be the case in our current law. This is an issue that the church for a long time has been unified on. One of the earliest church documents that we have, the Didache, which is, which is not the Bible. It's an extra biblical source, but it's, it's first century and it, and it gives us what the teaching of the apostles was from the perspective of the early church. And that is abundantly clear. The Didache says, quote, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion nor kill them when, when born. That abortion and infanticide are both wrong and, and, it's bo- and it, they're both murder. Now, I would like to address this question before we bring this home practically. Some would argue, well, but doesn't a woman have a right to her own body? Which is a fair question. I think it's based on some assumptions that are inaccurate, but it's a fair question. Doesn't she have a right to her own body? And and the answer to that simply is yes. But none of us have an unlimited right to our own bodies. You are not allowed legally to commit suicide. That's your own body. But you're not allowed to do it because we understand the value of life. From a biblical perspective, there were people in the Bible even in the same case. Job asked God to kill him, but he couldn't kill himself. So we do not have an unlimited right to our own body, but the primary problem that I have with that question, which is what seems to haunt a lot of those that are around us that don't have a biblical perspective is that the the question doesn't every woman have a right to her own body and I will say just sidebar here I understand I'm not a woman I'm a man and some would look and say well shut up you're not going to give birth to a baby you shouldn't even you know have an opinion on this particular question because you're a man I get some would think that I would argue on the contrary because I think that logic can prevail here But the problem with the question, doesn't every woman have a right to her own body, is that it tacitly assumes that that baby is a part of the woman's body. That child is not a person, but it's actually a part of the woman's body, which the biblical data says otherwise, and scientific data says otherwise. Just last night, I was, I was praying through some of our expectant mothers that are on our, our prayer list for, for Carrie Rosenbauer and for, for Edie Boyce and for Jess Blakesley and for different people. And scientifically speaking, we would know that that fetus is not a part of the woman's body. If I was to take Edie is, is sorry to single you out, Edie, but Edie is pregnant right now, due, due in July. If I was to take Edie's genetic fingerprint, which we all have, which is more reliable than your actual fingerprint, our DNA. If I was to take a strand of Edie's hair and I was to take a piece of Edie's skin and I was to take a biopsy of one of Edie's organs and I compared those against each other, they would all have the exact same, absolutely unique genetic fingerprint that every, every piece of her would tell me, that's Edie, that's Edie, that's Edie, that those genetic markers would match up. But if I was to take a biopsy of the baby that is in her womb right now and I was to look at that genetically, I would find that that genetic fingerprint is not Edie's. That's a different person. And we know scientifically that that all of that, the DNA structure in our genetic fingerprint begins at conception, not after, at conception. Sure, there are other things that begin to happen, but even from a scientific perspective, our law right now is based on viability of 24 weeks that you can abort a baby, but 18 to 25 days after conception, there's a discernible heartbeat in a child. 
Now, we all understand that's important, particularly if your heart stopped beating right now. You get that. Eight weeks after conception, fingerprints and brain waves are present. Twelve to thirteen weeks, that baby sucks its thumb and recoils from pain. So the only way that you give this a fair shake and you come out on the end that, well, we could, you know, somewhere in the middle of this pregnancy make a, make a, a line of demarcation is if you just took your cues from the government. That's the only way. The government law is, in my estimation, entirely illogical. It's based on viability. It's, well, viability decades ago. Right now in Pennsylvania, after 24 weeks, an, ab- an abortion is not permitted, which I am thankful that that is at least the case, but it, it doesn't negate the travesty of the matter. Right now, the law is at 24 weeks. That was back then. If a baby was born, at what point in time could that baby potentially survive? Now, the problem with that is that it, that's, a, that's a moving point. We have babies that are born now at 21 weeks and survive. And the problem now is that the law would seem to say that, well, a few decades ago, that, that baby became a person and was afforded some rights at 24 weeks, but now that baby becomes a person and is afforded rights at 21 weeks, and what we're in, in essence saying, according to the law, is that people used to become people at 24 weeks, but now people become people earlier than that. And anyone who has any sense of, of rationale would have to admit that that's devoid of logic. That, that, that there's no universe in which that makes sense. So I guess the, the primary question for this conversation that has burned in my heart for, for some time now is where does this leave us? As a pastor, as Christians, as a church, as people, where does this leave us? I would think this first and foremost, that we're not dispassionate people. We're created with this sense of our understanding couples to our emotions. It's difficult to look at this topic and to, and to try to think and dwell on it for a few moments this, this morning and to treat it in a sober or a cognitive way. And in, and in my estimation, where this leaves us, as you look at just common sense, but especially as you look at the Bible, where this leaves us is that abortion is an evil of monstrous proportions. That abortion is, in fact, murder. That it is something that we, that we cannot ignore. It's a profound ethical issue, perhaps the most profound ethical issue that does face our culture and our nation today. And, and this is, it's a sad but true statement that today the most dangerous place inside of, of our land is the mother's womb. Where now we live in a, in a day and age where some have attributed or, or called this a modern day holocaust. And on a personal level, where this leaves me is with emotions that, that fly all over the place. I am I'm enraged, personally, at the wholesale slaughter of human life. I'm, I'm a bit fearful at the divine judgment that potentially awaits us because we as a people have allowed this. I'm perplexed that the nation that I love, honestly love, and hold near and dear to my heart and feel does a decent job of valuing human life could allow this to happen. I'm, I'm a bit befuddled, honestly, at the medical community, at, at a group of people who are supposed to, to live by a credence of do no harm, 
but now will we'll perform an abortion for money or will refer someone to an abortion clinic? And it's bad enough that, that women who are wrestling with this decision have some friends in their life that would tell them, oh, it's not really that big a deal. I don't think that's an actual person. It's bad enough that the press would, would present abortion in the softest and gentlest of terms that you could possibly imagine to try, to try to weaken people's consciences. But on top of all of that, there are medical professionals that have the title of doctor and that garners respect who are now easing young ladies' consciences and holding their hand effectively to the abortion clinic to allow them to have an abortion. And that, that messes with me. It upsets me a bit. This leaves me on a personal level in a place where there's this, this swirling of emotions and wanting to do something, but feeling what can I do or what should I do, and I've done my, my best to try to boil this down and, and tell us in a matter of just a few minutes, what should we do here? If we acknowledge that this is, that this is wrong, what should we do? I would say first and foremost, I only have two things, but first and foremost, standing for right is right no matter the consequences. This is not something that we can just ignore. And I don't know what the consequences will be, positive or negative. I can find in Scripture that there are the midwives, the Jewish midwives, who were told by the Egyptian government to commit infanticide and to kill those babies. And the Egyptian midwives refused, and God blessed them and gave them houses because of it. I can also find in Scripture that John the Baptist took an ethical stand to the king of that day, and they cut his head off for it. So I don't know what, what awaits us as far as from our culture, if there will be positive blessings from the Lord or if our, our heads will be cut off. Maybe literally, I doubt it, but probably proverbial speaking. But I do know this. Standing for right is right. And understanding that this is something that is wrong should grip us. I understand that we should be willing to have a clear, logical conversation with those that are our co-workers or our family members, even if it will make them angry at us. I believe that this is a conversation and a topic that I needed to address this morning, even if there's a measure of the room that gets uncomfortable when it's, when it's talked about. I believe that doctors and nurses should do the right thing and should advocate for life, even if your boss or the medical community will, will make you a black sheep because of it. I'm certain that this is something that the church as a whole cannot equivocate on. And it's not just enough for us to have a consciousness about this. We can't just sit down and have fireside chats about the issue of abortion. It should, it should help us. We should do something. If this is all true, and I believe that it is, then there's not a fundamental difference between an abortion doctor and a hitman. Someone who's receiving financial enumeration to snuff out another human life. I know, I know that that is a, I'm going for the juggler with an emotional statement there. I, I get that. But it should be something that we take a stand on. The Bible tells us this. The Bible tells us that when Cain murdered Abel, that Abel's blood cried from the ground to the Lord, and he heard the cry. And I would have to think that the ears of the Lord are being assaulted by the untold millions whose blood has to cry out from the ground. This is, it's something that we must, we must engage in. We have to engage in. 
I started this morning by saying the war for men's souls and presenting the gospel people is the primary issue. It is the primary issue, but this is one that we should roll up our sleeves on and that we should understand that we need to do something. So spiritually and practically, here's where I'm at. Spiritually, I believe that there are many who just need to repent. There may be some in the room that earlier in life you had an abortion. Can I tell you, 1 John 1, 9 is valid for you. If, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's grace is sufficient there, and I'm not, I'm not going to water it down. I'm not going to tell you, oh, it's no big deal. Just, eh, it, was, it was just a little mistake. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm not going to say that, but I am going to say that it's not an unforgivable sin and that you can confess it and that you can move forward in victory in Jesus Christ and, and that you would be accepted by him and by the church as a whole. Perhaps it's beyond that. Perhaps it's you recommend it to someone to get an abortion. Perhaps you had the opportunity to steer someone towards life and you just you kept silent and you shut your mouth and you, you opted not to steer someone that way. Perhaps you're a medical professional in the room and for, out of sake and convenience for your own career, you have been silent and you have been scared to say anything. Perhaps you're like me and you feel as though you've been a little indifferent for too long. Whatever the case, if any of those hit home, I would say confess and repent and say, Lord, help me to engage in this. But practically speaking, I do think that there's a task for us. I think there's something that we can do. At the very least, we can pray. Probably at the very most we could pray, I should say. We can pray and we can engage some time and some emotion on this ourselves. I personally can think of no greater issue that should determine who you vote for or do not vote for. And I'm not trying to make you a pro-life Republican, but I I do believe with all my heart that that's the greatest issue that should determine who, in fact, you're casting a vote for that's going to push forward legislation on this issue. I think it would behoove us to call and to write and to lobby and spend some time talking to our government and our lawmakers on a consistent basis. I think we should speak up. I think we should dialogue about this with other people. We should have a conversation and not just all heat and no light. There should be some light and there should be an honest conversation with people, but we should speak up and be passionate about it. I think that we should do something. In our church, we have done some things over the years, but I'd love for us to continue to do some things and to do more things on this issue. I'm grateful that we've been a part of a March for Life and joining tens of thousands of people in D.C. and doing that. I'm grateful that we've taken up offerings for the Tri-Life Baby Center in Lower Barrel and tried to be a, a help and, and, a, and a, a buttress and, and a support to them. But I feel that there is more that we can do. We can't make this our primary focus because the gospel is. But we can do something. In my own life, I'm looking at what... I need to be more involved. I need to speak up. I need to do so. And I hope that you feel the same way. Just this week, I got a, it was a mailer about 40 days of, of civil protest and praying that's going to take place in front of Planned Parenthood for 40 days, starting here at the end of February and into March. Honestly, and I'm, I'm ashamed to say this, but honestly, in previous years, I would have gotten the mailer. I get a million mailers every week. I would have gotten the mailer and I would have thrown it in the trash and thought, one more thing to do. But I looked at that, I've never, I've never protested anything in my life, honestly. 
I've never done some, some civil stand in front of somewhere, and the thought of doing one threatens me and scares me and makes me really uneasy, honestly. But I'd love for us to be involved in it. I don't know what will become of it, but I'd love for us to try. I'd love for us to pray. I'd love for us as a people, corporately and individually, to, to not be content to be indifferent, but to do something. And this morning, we're going we're gonna to switch gears in a moment. We're going to sing a little bit and take up an offering, and we'll have some announcements, and we'll, the emotion of, of the moment, the heaviness of the sermon will change. I get that, but I hope. And I pray that our hearts are stirred, that we can't look at this in the face and say, I'm not going to do anything, but that we rise up and somehow we, we, we influence change on an issue that change needs to be influenced.